3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast on 8.55am. I'm Genevieve, I'm joined with Zoya and Madison. How are you guys? Pretty good, Good. actually. Good morning. Morning. (laughs) Morning. How are you, Genevieve? I'm well. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I'm okay. I've recently moved house and it's spring, so <laughs> things are looking up. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, spring. I, was, I, I could smell yeah, jasmine the, women, the other day. It's made such a difference. Yes. Mm. Oh, my God. Jasmine is like my favourite smell, definitely. I wish, like, and, I, and it's, it's kind of about... nice that the world's doing so many nature things, right? Yeah. You don't know. There's something about jasmine as well. Like yeah. I find that, you know, perfume or soaps or candles or whatever, they never capture jasmine. It's almost like jasmine's like a feeling when you smell it, mm. right? like it smells warm. It has to be, because it releases mm. when it's kind of warm and a bit du- and like at dusk. You, you, you can't bottle jasmine. It's one of those things that just, yeah, it's yeah. ephemeral, I suppose. Totally. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a big... Um, it's very sensory. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. There was, like, a big vine of it at my old house, actually, and, like, it just, like, floods the house, like, the whole smell. Just, like, I mean, yeah, the house is... Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, so our recommendation to everyone listening, if it's a nice day, because obviously this is pre-recorded, we don't know if the weather's going to be warm uh, on on <laughs> Tuesday morning, but if it is, try and get out if you can for your after your hour exercise at dusk and smell some jasmine and feel in the world. It'll be lovely. Yeah, <laughs> put your That's head in your neighbor's. Put your head in your neighbor's jasmine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, <laughs> we've. <laughs> We've got some. Sorry, I just had I had a ridiculous thought that I won't. I won't no, share. no. I was saying like you know how during the election they have the sausage sizzle map, um, and about like at each of the election <laughs> polling booths, which one have what kind of sausage sizzles, and if they are, and people rate them, and they have vegan ones or cupcakes. They should have a jasmine map, and then you can know where the really good jasmine is, and then yeah. you can plan your walk based on your jasmine on the jasmine. Oh, that's a great yeah, idea. Do that. Yeah, for oh, sure. yeah, there was one for Fijoas, apparently. Wait, there's one for Joas. Fijoa, the, the oh the, yeah, the yeah, the fruit. Um, that uh, there's there's a map that that locates where they are around Melbourne, and you can go and find Fijoas because they grow in people's gardens and stuff. And so yeah. people don't harvest them, so you can ask if you can get some Fijoa or something. I don't know. Beautiful, something like that. Good idea. Mm. Some chutney. Ooh. too late in the season now but next year yeah <laughs> so is anyway yeah. i am distracting us all from <laughs> the point at hand which is what's on our show today oh yeah no um uh i'll take uh, i reckon we'll do 
some current affairs before we forget what's actually going on in the world, which is a lot, it turns out, as always. Um, yeah. Yeah, Melbourne has extended their stage four restrictions for another two weeks. Um, so that will be to the 28th of September. Um, after the 28th, oh, sorry, no, after the 13th of September when it was originally supposed to end, the curfew will be extended an hour till 9 p.m. Wow. Just imagine more how much you can though. do. Yeah. <laughs> till 8 imagine to 9 p.m. Imagine how much more jasmine. I know. You can <laughs> do a couple more sprints around the neighbourhood. Um, uh, and <laughs> <laughs> people who live in their own would be able to have one guest in their home. Um, so extending the rules from intimate partner visits to one friend or family member, which is great. I just have so much sympathy for the people that are living alone at the moment. I've like just moved in mm. to very, this is like kind of a momentary thing for me. I've moved into, um, an apartment and I've been predominantly by myself and it, it's, a, it's hard work. I've only been here for like a two weeks and like it's, it's a whole different board. yeah so, yeah it's very very heartening that the government has listened to responses and listened to feedback about that definitely yeah definitely um yeah. Yeah, yeah i feel like the government has a real clear idea of what like family units are um which is quite frustrating because a lot of people fall outside of those sort of traditional family units, especially in metropolitan Melbourne. So it is important that there are networks that aren't, that are more like chosen family as opposed to, you know, strictly intimate partners and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, yeah, what counts as a, as a, as a partner is very, very different for single people who are living potentially in cities where their families aren't there. It's, it's yeah. a very, very different thing. Yeah. With friendships that are intimate partnerships yeah. in many yeah. ways. Absolutely. I feel like, yeah, Australia especially has been very um, late to that um, decision-making. Yeah. I know that uh, just off the top of my head that in Europe they kind of had an ultimatum. They were like, you either, you know, partner up with someone now or <laughs> you wait it out kind of thing or like, you yeah. know, which is kind of also stressful and like yeah having to choose someone yeah. fast. <laughs> but yeah I think I did that in the Netherlands it's like, uh, Hunger Games. <laughs> yeah. it's like the Hunger Games yeah. or like that movie the lobster oh yes <laughs> uh, which is which is yeah, the lobster. Uh, I love that movie yeah. Yeah. which which for those of you who don't know is a film where um I think it's got Colin Powell in it and it's in this world where uh, you must find a partner and if you don't find a partner by a certain time you get turned into an animal um, mm. and you get to choose the animal, but you still get turned into an animal nonetheless. And it's, it's quite dystopian and, and um, it's great. And yet I, somehow quite relevant so to our times. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah. Just this eerie. Yeah. The director, I've um, forgotten his name, but he does some really amazing. Igor, Igor, I think. Yeah. He's a Greek director. Yeah. 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 Um, and just one more thing I wanted to mention in terms of current affairs heading to the US. I mean, they're always bubbling with um, content at the moment. But uh, so violent clashes uh, have escalated between right and left wing protesters the, in the city of Portland, which seems to be the epicenter of um, the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as um, the protests in general. Uh, but Donald Trump, uh, so President Donald Trump has 
sharpened his rhetoric um, against what he calls, um, and this is a quote by him, left-wing extremism engulfing American cities. Um, he's alluded to, and this is another quote, thugs wearing black uniforms with gear and has um, labelled the uh, Antifa. So these, this is another quote, these anarchists and Antifa are moving people around the country. <laughs> I know. Um, and we'll be treating, so pretty much he's labelling them as a domestic terrorism group. And for people that don't know what Antifa is, uh, it's <laughs> sure for anti-fascists. Uh, they're highly decentralised uh, oppositional social movement um, that encompasses many autonomous groups, networks and individuals. And what binds them together is this rejection of fascism, in, and that includes white supremacy. Um, and it's a homogenous entity and has no identical command structure, leadership, apparatus, or any radicalised membership. So for them to be labelled as... <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> for them to be labelled as a domestic terrorism organisation is completely... Yeah. Um, yeah, but obviously poses numerous risks to democratic society and the right to protest in general. Um, yeah, but the scenes out there are just like horrific at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Is anyone oh, finding it's getting quite hard to report it's really, um, on what's happening in the US? Mm. Because it's just, it's just constant and so chaotic. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's harrowing. Yeah. Yep. And you're just thinking like, goodness, it's harrowing. Yeah. And it's just like, there's only so much uh, shock that you can take when it comes to someone like Donald Trump, because it's just like, we know that he is who he is. And yet he keeps showing us and we're meant to process that, but we already know, but we're also still shocked. Yeah. So it's this like really complex way of digesting information about him. Yeah. I think, yeah, the an influx in information and an influx in so much information that's quite intense and um, would, uh, yeah, just the volume of it, it makes you quite a numb to the, um, feeling of it and the reaction of it, especially that's what uh, I think President Donald Trump is doing right now with the elections. The only thing that he's kind of yeah. holding on to is this, um, like this war against the left and this war against these protests. Um, but yeah, I think just the volume of media it really kind of mm. takes away the quality and the time you have to yeah process that mm. and so therefore mm. it's kind of just like it's just for sure a lot. and I think I think you know to take Absolutely. a more domestic lens when we turn it on ourselves I think that that is often happening within our own spaces here where the volume of media around for example COVID um, which obviously we do need to stay on top of and focus on because it is so, so relevant and present for all of us here in Melbourne nonetheless that constant stream of it is not only giving us you know covid and lockdown fatigue but what it's giving us is media fatigue and it's making it very difficult for us mm -hmm. to engage with other things that are i mean obviously covid is important obviously people are losing their lives and it's it's horrible and people are losing their livelihoods and who knows how it's going to impact us all however there are other things that both good and bad and important and things that we need to be engaging with to to 
keep our communities and our societies going in yeah. other directions yeah. that we keep losing. And I also have a fear of it in some circles and with some media organizations or with certain government structures, it being almost intentional or allowing it to happen because that yeah. way uh, we, we are no longer looking at some of the things that warrant still being looked at. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that, sorry, just one more thing <laughs> before we get onto the show. Um, the more, the more media and the more options you have to get your information from, the more likely it is for people to become obviously confused, but the more likely it gives the well, governments an opportunity to put someone, an authoritative figure to guide people. Mm. Because if there's too many options, people usually get overwhelmed and they look for an authoritative figure to tell them what to do. So yeah, it's kind of this manipulation mm. of the fact that there is so much information and, you know, you have a leader saying, well, you need to look at this information. You need to look at that information. I think that's mm. where it becomes dangerous. Um, that's anyway. a really good point. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's, it's drawn point. off like this psychological thing where, you know, the good guys, for example, the business, they have a million different fridges from a million different brands and the human psych automatically goes, I don't know which one to choose. So they have the salesman that says, Oh, you choose this one. It's like really, yeah. It's like inbuilt in like business and industry. Yeah. Yeah. It's deep. It's deep capitalism really as well. Like it's yeah. very paralysis of choice. That's, that's something that they, um, when you look at, um, there were studies done looking at, at post-Soviet, countries and that shift from the sort of um soviet socialist model through to the capitalist model it was especially done in places like germany where they could really see because it's two countries kind of coming back together and um mm. the impact on people's well-being of suddenly having a million things to choose from in a supermarket of going from one choice of butter through to 30 choices of butter doesn't actually make anything better you're just suddenly yeah. stuck and you're just looking at all those things and, yeah. and that's almost like there's that. Yeah. You, you're, yeah. You're looking for guidance on, on, on how to, on how to choose it. Mm-hmm. And I can totally see how that also feeds into deciding on what matters in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, probably get on to what is actually going on in the show today. Yeah. Let's do a quick recap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, what's go, what, uh, uh, who have you interviewed this week, Zoya? Well, I had an interview with Ruth Kateralos from Queer Space. We, as many listeners may know, we do a semi-regular segment with Queer Space. It's sort of gone up and down in the past few months as all things have with COVID. So we are very, very happy, um, that I got my act in line and uh, lined up this interview. It's this great conversation. We talk a little bit about some of the, at the beginning, we talk a little bit about some of the programs and things that, that Queer Space are doing. But later on, we start delving into how COVID is impacting uh, people in the queer community, as well as how going remote for queer spaces actually enabling them to help other people for example spread outside of melbourne and the impact of that so it's it's a really really lovely um conversation that, that i had with ruth awesome and then um lauren had an interview 
uh, with um, uh, I have managed to lose my notes. <laughs> Lauren <laughs> had <laughs> um, Lauren had an interview with Sarah Hill, who is the Young Women's Development Manager at the YWCA. And the YWCA have a new web series called Reflect, Grow, Thrive, which will run in the week leading up to International Day of the Girl, which is 11th of October. And it features notable guest speakers, including Naoko Gori, Carly Findlay, Manal Yunus, Amy Thunig, Elizabeth Wright, Ray Cooper, Lucille Cutting, and Keiichi Anele. So it's really, really, really great. Um, and yeah, Lauren had a bit of a chat with Sarah about that. Mm. Yeah, we've also got um so uh the third yeah, the third series of the underfoot um series done by Footscray residents Liz Crash and Jinghua Xian, uh, which is uncovering the secrets of Footscray. Uh they put an intimate lens on local history um and travel through the archives um to talk about uh the uh queer communities, migrants, radicals and artists. Uh, we will be hearing track three, which is titled Labour of v- Labour in Vain. Uh, this track chats about settler nativism, anti-Chinese campaigns, arts and gentrification and the grotesque, grotesque fantasy of a white Australia. That sounds fantastic. Amazing. All right. Um, and if we have time, we might be hearing from Amy McGuire. Um, who is an incredible journalist um, and her book, Black Witness, The Power of Indigenous Media, was recently acquired by UQP. So fingers crossed we get to hear from her today um, about what that book will capture. But if not, it's a great show anyway. All righty. Sounds like a great show. Well, thanks all for the chat. Absolutely. And I hope everyone has a... Absolutely. And have a wonderful day and try and smell as much jasmine as you can. Absolutely.
That was Neo with a new track she has featuring Leanne Le Havis uh, called Woman. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. Speaking with Ruth Catarellis from Queer Space, we do a sort of semi-regular Queer Space segment um, here on Tuesday Breakfast, but it's been a while since um, since we've done that. So, Ruth, um, before we begin, I'll start off with saying good morning. How are you doing? Good morning, Zoe. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you going? I am as well as can be expected. The sun is shining while I'm doing this interview, so I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about that. Um, so that's always good. But absolutely, um, <laughs> as I said, uh, we do the semi-regular segment, but it's been a while. So before we kick off, why don't you let me know a little bit about what Queer Space is, what you do, and also what you specifically as a person do with Queer Space? Sure. Um, so Queer Space runs out of uh, Dr- uh, Drummond Street in Carlton, and it's an LGBTQIA plus health and wellbeing support service. Um, so we, we were established in 2009, and essentially we offer counselling, um, individual counselling, relationship, family counselling. We offer case management and advocacy as well to our clients. Um, we've got peer support groups and seminars operating and we also do run some professional development as well so all all the good stuff basically for the queer community all the good stuff absolutely (laughs) um and my role there i'm a psychologist um i've been working at queer space for about four years now and primarily my role is in counseling um and sometimes i do you know a little bit of um a little bit of work on the comms committee um i'm doing this interview but yeah primarily i'm a counselor Mm. And we're going to have a bit of a discussion around some of the programs that, that Queer Space is running at the moment, and in particular, a couple of um, quite sort of important support and relief programs that are happening. But I thought just at the beginning, um, have a bit of a chat. I mean, you know, because COVID's everywhere, so we kind of have to mention it. Um, how has Queer Space been adapting to the lockdown? Um, yeah, look, like everywhere, I think, you know, we went into kind of... Um, quick movement at you know in mid or early to mid-march um all of our programs are still running but we had to do everything offline so there was a fair bit of kind of scrambling to reorganize everybody um but you know uh, after the initial scramble everything has just been going relatively smoothly you know um within this interesting interesting and challenging time so all of our programs are still running um we've actually found for some of our clients that the online platform has actually worked really well um so you know there's a mixture um so business as usual except just from different places you know from our homes and other people's homes absolutely i I have found that there are some distinct benefits from being able to access services when when you don't actually have to go to a place, often the barrier to entry is is lower in some situ in some situations. It's true, and for some people, uh, Zoom has worked really well. Other for other clients, um, the actual video 
component has been an obstacle. So we've done been doing more phone consultations as well. Mm. But um, we have certainly found our, our way through it and, you know, are continuing to do so. We're not out yet. <laughs> That's really great to know. But looking more at the programs and services that, that are running at the moment, um, you mentioned before we started recording that there are a couple of, of particular programs that, that are, you're running during COVID that, or during this lockdown that, that are of interest and importance. Could you tell me about some of those? Sure. Look, well, maybe I'll start talking about the, the um, Drummond Street has been um, working towards and obviously including queer space has been working to provide food and essential um, items to families who are at risk or who are needing extra support um, particularly for example our clients in the um, in the towers um, and so early in early in May we um, got together with movable movable feast um, which was essentially a group of organisations, including um, Street Series, the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre Catering, um, and a couple of other groups, to be able to provide some pre-cooked and frozen meals. Um, Moving Feast was extremely popular, um, and we delivered a total of 1,890 um, pre-cooked meals. Um, but it, we ran out of funding with that relatively quickly. So then we partnered with um, Fair Share, Oz Harvest and the Halal Food Bank and basically to be able to continue that work. Um, so we then provided, I think between the 16th of July and the 6th of August, we essentially were able to support 417 people um, by delivering um, non-contact food and essential items. Um, which included PPE, um, it included um, essential items, sanitary products, nappies, baby formula, formula, baby formula, which were um, donated by the Melbourne Period Project. Also, mm -hmm. some toys um, from the donated from the Australian Toy Association for young people who were in um, lockdown. Um, so essentially, we've been able to support some of our more vulnerable clients, including, you know our cutie POC communities, um, some of our clients are sex workers or international students, so anybody who's been particularly at risk. Mm. And is that service still running? It is at the moment. Um, I think we are now on the tail end, but um, we've actually just got a, uh, another grant from the government to be able to enable us to support, um, keep supporting those communities um, so and hopefully... Sorry, go on. Oh, no, go ahead. Uh, we're just thinking, you know, hopefully hopefully the need won't continue for, you know, too much longer. But, um, yeah, we, we're all in a state of uncertainty, aren't we, about that? Yes, absolutely. And, and on the point of that, with that service in particular, uh, if people want to be able to access that service, how can they go about that? I'm not actually sure at the moment whether we are taking, um, whether we're able to offer that to new clients, mm -hmm. but certainly for anything that I mentioned today, um, anybody can look up any information on the um, Queer Space website or also contact our reception. Mm -hmm. um, our website is queerspace.org.au um, 
And our reception number, if you'd like me to give it out, is, <laughs> I'm shuffling pieces of paper here, is 966367 um, So that's been possibly the, the biggest um, project in terms of being able to provide material relief, mm -hmm. um, and that's been Drummond Street wide. Apart from that, our other programs... Um, for example, we have a mentoring program which has still been running and has been offering some great um, Zoom groups. Um, so we've got a, um, a queer TV time, so that's been running fortnightly to enable um, people to get on and watch Netflix or Stan or some queer um, content together if they're interested. Um, We've also got a group called Assemble, which is for over 20-year-old tra um, trans and gender-diverse young people. Um, we've got an under-20s group also for trans and gender-diverse uh, uh, young people called Talking Points. We've also got a gay and bi men's group for the over-40s. And we've got a parents group, which is running, um, which is primarily focusing on sexuality. Um, so and we have... Sorry, go on. You go ahead. I'm, I'm rattling away. No, please ask. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I was, it's an interesting um, uh, thing you're saying there about all these different groups that, you, that are now happening online, these different community groups. Do you think that lockdown is impacting queer people differently or in a particular way um, versus the broader community? Well, I think certainly members of the commu queer community because um, because we sit on the fringes, if you like, um, in some instances, we can certainly be more adversely impacted in terms of maybe having not such close family connections. Um, you know, isolation can certainly be more extreme sometimes for um, our queer communities. Um, and a lot of these programs have been, they've been essentially, I suppose, adapted for this time. So um, the mentoring project often does face-to-face -face work, which is, and that's essentially about, um, inviting members of the queer community who may not necessarily be uh, well established with friendships or who might just be just coming out or might have just relocated from interstate or from the country and that program essentially sets them up with a mentor um, so that to kind of ease that um, ease that entrance if you like into the queer community and to support them in making friends and connections um, and often those groups have met, you know, in the past face-to-face, -face, but these online platforms have definitely been um, developed to try and break down some of that social, social isolation that people are experiencing at the moment. Are you finding, I, I know that Drummond Street services, you know, by, by dint of it being local to Melbourne, serves the Melbourne-based community. Have you found that that has been shifting a bit since lockdown, can people outside of Melbourne now access those services or are they accessing those services and programs? Yeah, look, they certainly are in some instances. We've got a, um, a group called The Village, which is uh, essentially a program for parents of gender diverse and gender non-conforming young people. Mm -hmm. And I'm certainly aware that we've had parents joining that from both Tasmania and from Western Australia during lockdown, which, you know, clearly they couldn't otherwise do. So definitely, um, you know, it's been broadening out. I'm not sure so much in terms of uh, mentoring, but, um, but certainly within the village it has. 
that's really lovely to hear because I can imagine that um, you know smaller population areas and states probably don't have as high a number of parents of gender diverse kids so having that access that's that's a really great um, opportunity being provided by things moving remotely yeah it really is um and and the village particularly because it's it's both information but it's also an opportunity for parents to share together um Mm. to express you know any concerns that they have got so you know it is both both part kind of um, learning about gender and learning about some of the issues that their young people might face but just about connections so um I think, you know, in the foreseeable future, that may well expand um, even further now that we are are, um, attracting parents from interstate, which Mm. is wonderful. That's really great. And and talking about the future, looking to the rest of the year, obviously, there's some uncertainty about exactly how it's going to look. But there's I imagine we're going to be at best moving into a bit of a hybrid between online and offline. Does uh, are there any plans for any future programs or things in the next in the next sort of six months or so? Look, um, not 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 that I'm aware of at the moment. Um, but I think certainly, as you said, that mentioned the hybrid notion. I think that moving into the future, we will definitely still be offering um, some Zoom and maybe more telephone consults as well. Because, um, as we mentioned before, some of our clients have responded really well. Um, and sometimes, yes, leaving the house can be a, a barrier. Um, so I, I think that will definitely be a component of our work to come. Beyond that, you know, like most people, we haven't actually, um, we are in our own ways isolated at the moment. So we do have meetings, but um, I'm not sure much about um, what other projects have been within the different groups have been kind of established or being discussed. Oh, sure. um, I completely understand that. It's it's very hard to, I guess, plan when you when you don't know what things are going to look like. <laughs> so I think it's no. very, it's pretty awesome to be providing what you are providing at the moment. It sounds ridiculously diverse, and um, I'd be interested to know actually. And I don't know whether you have this information to hand. Um, whether you know there's been a shift in the types of services people are accessing, or the number of people accessing different services since we went into lockdown either in March or or even now um you know I I imagine perhaps people might be in more need of mental health services or or um might have a more sort of immediate um yeah desire absolutely absolutely so I mean we've we've certainly noticed an increase in um domestic violence issues and in anxiety also in um in you know risk suicide risk has also increased um uh, in terms of accessing other services i'm not 100 percent sure but in terms of what we're noticing within queer space and within drummond street Mm -hmm. um we're certainly noticing those things we're also you know um aware of more anxiety in young people and in um and in children Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, more pressure on families. And obviously there's the, the financial pressures that, you know, many people are experiencing at the moment. Um, and, you know, our, our most vulnerable populations in lots of ways, I guess, as I mentioned before, our cutie pock um, and asylum seeker um, communities. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You mentioned... Yeah, so... Go on. Yeah, you <laughs> the impact on, uh, on, on children, and that's, that's something that um, I'm quite maybe interested to explore if you if you have the time um the 
I mean, I, I can't even begin to imagine how it must be for children to be um, experiencing this level of isolation and inability to access, you know, school or communities that are so important to them for being around their peers. Um, what do you think is the impact on children at the moment or even potentially into the future? Look, I, you know, I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's difficult to say. Certainly what we seem to be seeing um, is that primary school age children are, um, you know, are a little bit more clingy perhaps. Um, and also, I mean, you know, they're living continually within the family dynamic. So depending on the dynamic of the family, um, if there's tension, then, you know, then clearly um, their mental health, you know, um, is going to be exacerbated by that. Um, there are other sections of Drummond Street that deal very specifically with families. And I know they've been doing some online programs, even in terms of kind of singing and dancing things for primary age school children. Um, with older kids, I think, um, I don't know, I've got two teens myself and I've watched over lockdown um, the change that, you know, my, my daughter um, in particular initially was much more active with friends in the first lockdown. But, you know, uh, I'm noticing and, and this is, seems to be what the research is saying that I'm seeing um, through the Drum Street research um, is that kids are withdrawing a little bit more as this time progresses and reaching out less. Um, so, yeah, you know, the challenges to families um, being particularly in this stage four lockdown, I think, are huge. Um, and if you couple that with um, any kind of financial pressure or, um, you know, work pressure, et cetera, you know, I think it's, it's a difficult time, very difficult time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's great that there are services like Drummond Street and like Queer Space within it that are providing that support um, because it seems like it's pretty essential at the moment to, to absolutely. have it in place. Mm. And I think, you know, in terms of long-term impacts, I think it's going to be difficult to determine on, you know, for all of us in lots of ways. Um, obviously, you know, there are communities that are far more at risk, um, but, you know, for everybody across the, the board, uh, we, we don't we don't have an end in sight, do we? So um, I think sitting in that place of uncertainty can be very challenging for a lot of people. And you know, part of the the, um, the thing at the moment, I guess, is just to tr for people to try and take care of themselves and each other. Um, we've been saying that, but I think it's you know that that need is not lessening; it's growing. Absolutely. Kindness and community seem to be the things that will get us through this. Absolutely. And, you know, being kind to each other and to ourselves, you know, not expecting too much and, you know, sometimes just doing some of the small things that can improve your day, you know, by going for a walk or, you know, cuddling a cat or a dog or, you know, reaching out. And, and the reaching out, I think, is particularly important, which is, again, one of the reasons for these groups um, we're acutely aware of the social isolation that people are, ex you know, that, that some people live with in their day-to-day -day anyway, but, but that is clearly exacerbated hugely um, in this time. Mm. I, I do find that uh, an interesting point you say about some people live it in their day-to-day. -day. And I, you know, my, my hope is that uh, the positive that will come out of this situation is that people and structures um, and you know, the structures of power will have more empathy for people who are living in isolation 
and hopefully we can try and address that the the i guess the pandemic of loneliness that was existing before covid and is likely to continue after and we can hope to to improve that yeah so i, I agree uh, i mean i you know i think we you know some of some of the government responses have certainly been that they've been aware you know m- um, in some communities, they haven't perhaps been as broad as others, but I think, you know, there is an awareness, uh, I guess, um, and hopefully, as you say, a shifting that people can, you know, the, the, the kindness pandemic, etc., that we can kind of reach out and stay connected. You know, we've had to connect in very, very different ways during this time, and hopefully, you know, um, we can, you know, maintain that and extend it so that, yes, compassion is probably the most important thing at the moment to others and to self oh for sure i think that's a really beautiful point to uh to end it on that was a really wonderful conversation and ruth if people want to um access queer space or drama street services you mentioned the website and the phone number in the middle of the interview but uh if people want to access it and they've only just come into the middle of this conversation uh, would you be able to repeat um those details Absolutely. So um, you can contact Queer Space on the reception number, which is 9663-6733. I should say that the area code is 03. Mm -hmm. Um, And also um, on queerspace.org.au. We are not a crisis service, so I feel like I should point that out. So our hours are pretty well nine to five. But if people are needing support or to reach out, at other times, they can contact Switchboard on 1-800-184-527 or also Lifeline on 13-11-14. Ruth Katerilos, apologies. I am <laughs> That's okay, Zoe, no worries. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about all the wonderful things that Queer Space is doing, and I hope you have a lovely day. Thank you. You're very welcome, and thanks very much for the opportunity. Um, yeah, and you too. Enjoy. Hope you get some sun. Oh, I hope so. BDS Australia is hosting an online forum featuring boycott, divestment and sanctions. BDS co-founder Omar Barghouti on Saturday, August 29 at 7.30pm. Joining Omar will be First Nations scholars Amy McGuire and Professor Tony Birch, as well as Palestinian Australians Dr. Randa Abdel-Fatah and Ms. Hibafara. They'll be discussing the shared experience of dispossession, state-based discrimination and racism, and how to counter it. Details can be found at bdsaustralia.net.au. That's bdsaustralia.net.au. Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions, BDS Australia, is part of the global effort to end support for Israel's oppression of Palestinians and pressure Israel to comply with international law. More details at bdsaustralia.net.au. BDS Australia is a 3CR support. I know what you did. Yeah, I know, I know. And I want to talk about it. And I know you don't. I've been holding guard for so long, so long. And I don't know where to start. I don't know where to start. You go. Tell me is she nice? She knows I know. Tell me why you lie. Tell me why. I don't know.
artist Mahalia uh, featuring Ella May with What You Did. You are on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. You're here with me, Lauren, and I'm joined by Sarah Hill, who is the Young Women's Development Manager at the YWCA. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today because I was thinking um, while I was working on getting this interview together that um, probably a lot of us still have an idea of the YWCA as like a like a netball hole somewhere um, or something like that. And so I wanted to maybe start with a bit of a, an update. Like what does the YWCA look like in 2020? Oh, that's a great question. And, <laughs> and yeah, we've been around um, for over 100 years. So we've definitely evolved lots along the way. <laughs> um, and, and sports halls were definitely in there at some point. Um, but YWCA is um, a national intersectional feminist organisation. Um, and we operate around Australia and run different programs and services um, that all focus in the areas of housing, safety and leadership, 
uh, for women, young women and girls. Um, and I focus in particular on working uh, with young women from all around Australia on leadership development opportunities. Um, yeah, across all of those pillars. So, so we do a, a lot of stuff um, and we're, we're constantly um, evolving in our feminism and working on how we can be um, best advocates and, and support young women in their leadership. Fantastic. Um, and so kind of very in that theme, um, the YWCA has launched a new web series, um, which is super exciting and I'm loving the sound of it. Could you maybe talk us through um, maybe first just what it's all about and why it was started? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we are launching a webinar series to celebrate International Day of the Girl, um, which is a um, UN Observance Day that we celebrate each year on October the 11th. Um, and the aim of that day is to um, highlight the unique and, and different intersecting challenges um, that are faced by young women and girls around the world. Um, so this year to celebrate, we're, we're hosting our 10-part webinar, webinar series, um, and that's focused on different personal and professional development opportunities for young women. And um, you know, as well as it being International Day of the Girl, we feel like it's a really important time to step up and support young women. I mean, the COVID-19 pandemic has really disproportionately impacted young women. You know, we're feeling it through the loss of employment, um, disrupted education, social isolation, mental health concerns. Um, you know, combined with a, a pretty inadequate federal government response um, that doesn't really impact um, the pandemic response. Uh, sorry, the pandemic impact on young women. Um, or young people in general. So we think this is a really, really opportune time to, to offer something um, for young women that's really informative and engagement, engaging and that's focused on their development. Mm. Um, yeah, so the series is called Reflect, uh, Grow, Thrive, and it's running in the week leading up to International Day of the Girl Child. So we've got the first webinar happening on the 5th of October. Um, and the series has been co-designed by young women from all around Australia, and it features um, presenters who really understand um, the issues and, and will resonate with young women. Mm. So much to ask. Okay. Um, firstly, I guess, what are some of the topics that you'll be covering off on? Yeah, so we've got um, a really broad range and we're trying to bring together those kind of that personal development and that professional development angle. So we've got things like um, how to be an ally, uh, self-care and managing burnout, uh, gender equality in the workplace, um, climate change as a feminist issue, and keeping our foot on the pedal of the Black Lives Movement in Australia. Amazing. Um, and and um, each of those is kind of different formats. So some of them are like an in-conversation and then some of them mm -hmm. are a panel. Um, and some of the speakers um, off the top of my head are, are people like Carly Finlay, um, Tal Fitzpatrick, Manal Yunus, Amy Thunig, uh, Ketchi Anal. So yeah, it's a whole range of really great uh, women involved. Yeah, so fantastic. I think... Um... I'll just, I was just looking at it and saw some stuff around um, young people's rights in terms of housing and employment discrimination and that sort of stuff as well. Some really great um, sort of alongside the personal development, as you say, that professional or practical kind of um, leadership development, that sort of stuff. Really great for young women. Yeah, and so important at the moment as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, everybody should know their workers' rights. Um, so I guess you've talked about the co-design with the young women um, and also about intersectional feminism. What sort of pros process uh, has the YWCA gone through in terms of making sure, I guess, that this co-design was really representative and diverse um, in terms of the young women you're aiming to reach? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so it was co-designed. We have um, a group of about eight different young women from around Australia uh, working on this, and they did everything from um, the session design 
um, to brainstorming speakers. Um, they also talk about kind of, uh, you know, the brand and the pitch to make sure that it's accessible and appealing. Um, you know, we talk about how we run the webinar sessions as well. So making it accessible. So the webinar is free. Um, so we didn't want financial barrier financial kind of cost to be a barrier. You know, we're making sure that all of the sessions um, have closed captions so they're accessible for people to engage with. Um, yeah, so it's really, it's really been a really great process. And we wanted to make sure as well that we had um, women and young women that were on the panels um, that were not just kind of the same people who always get opportunities to speak on these panels. We wanted to really have young women who, who don't often have um, a national platform or maybe their first time on a panel, um, but we wanted to encourage the participation um, and facilitating each of the sessions as well um, are young women from around Australia. So we really wanted to put them um, at the centre of guiding the conversation and then driving that. So great. I can't wait to watch. Um, and how, if people do want to watch, if they're similarly excited, how do people access this? Yeah, great. So um, you, the webinar session is free, so we're really lucky to be been supported um, with a community grant to, to run this um, program. So it's free for all YWCA members, and YWCA membership is free, so essentially it's free. Um, mm -hmm. You just have to head over to ywca.org.au um, and sign up for the webinar session. Um, if you don't want to uh, sign up for YWCA membership, it only costs $2.50. Um, so the cost is pretty low anyway, and it's all happening um, over Zoom as well, and we'll be recording the sessions. Beautiful. I'll pop a link up uh, for any listeners who are interested on our 3CR Tuesday Breakfast webpage, um, so you can go to it through there or on the podcast link. Um, Sarah, I'm really looking forward to watching it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks. I brought in this letter to let you know I'm really leaving and no, I'm not keeping your shit Heard you got some new homies, got some new hobbies Even a new hoe too Maybe she can come help you Maybe she can come lick you After we're done, what's done is done I don't want nothing else to do with it. Let me tell you a secret. I've been secretly banging your homeboy. Why you in Vegas? All up on Valentine's Day. Why am I so easy to forget like that? It can't be that easy for you to get like that. Oh no, she didn't. Oh yes, I did. Oh no, she didn't. I'll do it again. Leave me lonely for pretty women. You Attention for shit like that. You know you want for shit like that. I could be your supermodel if you believe. If you see it in me, see it in me, see it in me. I don't see myself. Why I can't stay long just by myself? Wish I was comfortable just with myself. But I need you, but I need you, but I need you. Oh, just get a load of them. They got chemistry. All they could say we like brother and sister Look so good together Bet they fucking for real And they was right That's why I stayed with your The, the dick was too good to make me feel good For temporary love You was your temporary love Leave me lonely for pretty women You know I need too much attention For shit like that You know you want for shit 
a song by SZA of her award-winning album titled Control. Uh, that was the first track on that album called Supermodel. Cool. So first of all, um, I thought it would be wonderful for you to be able to introduce yourself. Um, yeah, my name is Amy McGuire. I'm a Durrumbull and South Islander journalist living in Rockhampton, Queensland. Mm-hmm. Um, in a statement published by UQP, uh, one one of the things you stated really stuck out to me, and it was, um, it is not about assimilating into mainstream media, but about fostering our own voices in our own independent media. And I think this is an incredibly important point because it sort of acknowledges the violence in how we understand language to function in Australia. Yeah. Are you able to elaborate on this point a little bit? Yeah, I think um, that's been the um what's really missing from a lot of conversations around diversity in media a lot of particularly in um aboriginal media it seems to be all geared around how do we get as many um aboriginal people in mainstream spaces but it's ignorant of a really uh, strong foundation that's already been built and historically aboriginal media have been fundamentally tied to grassroots activism um our oldest uh newspaper is land oh, that's currently running is land rights news up in the territory which is published by the land council so aboriginal media has actually played a really critically important um role in our communities and in our struggles and i just think it's a shame that that's really missed out um and it seems to be focused more on achieving success in a white way rather than fostering a really strong foundation for um a lot of aboriginal journos coming up to just be able to write and to um report um, and speak on our issues independently in our own independent media. So I think that's, um, you know, I think it's just about trying to create some sort of strong um, environment for that to continue to flourish. Mm. And I think that's what's been really missing um, in the past. And you're right, like mainstream media fundamentally um, about, well, I see it as operating um, to serve a lot of the interests of the powerful. Mm. Um, and particularly in relation to our communities, there's just no accountability. So I just feel like the focus a lot of the time is on the wrong um, thing. It's a very sort of white aspiration-led solutions, um, which I don't think, I mean, I don't think it's going to lead to huge changes if we're not bringing the whole community along. Mm. Um, so that's why I think, yeah, independent media and independent black media is really where we should be going, I believe. Absolutely. Um, your article, which was in the Saturday paper, that there cannot be 432 victims and no perpetrators, it really cemented something ghastly about not only the ways Aboriginal life is devalued, but in how the deaths of First Nations people is robbed of answerability and of accountability. Yep. Um, yeah. How That article was so widespread. How, how was it received and how has it played a role, if any, in, in Black Witness? Um. 
It was interesting. Uh, I think it was pretty well received, um, which, you know, you never really know how anything is going to be, you know, what the response is going to be. Mm. Um, but it really was based on, I think I had like a day to write it, so it was really based on just the background of reporting and I've done, but also a lot of Aboriginal journalists have done and it's been focused really on um, justice and I think that was, you know, a lot of the time it is missing. It's almost seen as um, what I wanted to get through, that, you know, like these videos, like the video of George Floyd, I mean, the videos we've seen of you know, the deaths in custody of um, Aboriginal people like Miss Jude, sometimes it could just be seen as entertainment and the apathy that greets these deaths, even when they're shown um, on footage, can be really hurt, hurtful to the families. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was just that time period where we finally had some focus on uh, Black Lives Matter because of what happened overseas, um, that it seemed to be received quite well. But, yeah, I just really wanted to um, refocus it on who the perpetrators are because I think that's often missing. It's just these, you know, Aboriginal deaths are continually occurring in custody, but there's no talk about who's actually responsible. Yeah. And because we don't talk about that, obviously, you know, we've never had a conviction over an Aboriginal death in custody. Mm. Um, and often it's just these, you know, we even see it with um, the most recent case where the DPP decided in only 10 days case that they weren't going to prosecute. And in David Dungay Jr.'s case, the family is still calling for prosecution. Mm. So we have to sort of make that a really solid part of the discourse around this. You know, we're actually looking for accountability and justice. We're not just talking about, you know, there has to be some end result for for families. It can't just keep going on and on. So I think it's that really normalising what we're asking and and bringing it into that spectrum of debate, which has been left out of for so long. Um, So I think, yeah, just focusing on that. Um, But obviously I'm not the only person who's been calling on it. We've like Aboriginal mob all, you know, for decades that's been what um we've been calling for is accountability um and we've seen that it just you know hasn't happened so Mm. yeah yeah i love that point because it sort of takes the labor of one's life off of you know the indigenous bodies and and it, it really reframes the discussion around justice and i think that yeah. that one line was so it's tr- it it's so shocking it, uh, f- from a completely numerical level and um yeah it, it was it was such an incredible article um i want to actually yeah. speak to another article that you wrote last year it was in the winter edition of Mianjin, um and it was titled black and white witness um and it raises a lot of amazing points, and I really would encourage our listeners to go and read it because it isn't protected by paywall at the moment. Not that I, I think you should subscribe to me, Anjan, but for those that don't have access to it, it is well worth the read. And there's a point you make about Joe Hildebrand, um, or rather what he sort of stands for in the media, and he mentions in sweeping terms when discussing colonisation uh, that, uh, and as you quoted, that all of history is war and it is equally vital that Indigenous Australians understand that for all the tragedy and horror, there has never been an intent to, uh, quote, invade them or um, de- or a deliberate campaign of genocide. And there seems to be this very colonial obsession with intention. <clears throat> and it's something you pointed out, you know, he's obviously wrong for starters. There was a very explicit aim. But do you think that the white witnesses need to point out that the only ill doing would be in the intent rather than the <clears throat> act itself is a deliberate oh. form of gaslighting or a detraction? Oh, I definitely think it's a detraction and as you said like we've seen it constantly that was the big argument against um howard refusing to apologize 
to members of the stolen generations. But at the mm. time, it was about good intentions. And we know that intentions don't mean anything because that doesn't reverse the hurt of families just looking in the context of the stolen generations who've had to deal with generations and generations of trauma. And then we see the continuing... Um, you know, we see the continuing removal of children under the current child protection system. And so I think that's definitely the way, and it's also a way of also putting accountability, uh, responsibility back onto the shoulders of Aboriginal people um, Mm. themselves. And so it's definitely a deflection. Um, And, you know, there's this thing where um, white Australia wants to be seen as benevolent and, you know, saving the blacks and, you know, easing the pillow of the dying race, which is what um, they wanted to do under the... um, past policies of like assimilation and paternalism mm. and they push black fellows into um, reserves and missions and so it's continually been about them being seen as the white saviours um, and us being continually in need of saving and that's where um, again when we're talking about deaths in custody and the previous point that's where the perpetrator and the violence is totally obscured mm. um, and the violence of white Australia is totally obscured as well because they're seen as these benevolent um, almost like mission managers, you know what I mean? And it's the same when we look at, like, closing the gap, you know, Aboriginal poverty and ill health is seen as our own responsibility. They talk about, you know, smoking and alcohol rates and it's just ways that they can really um, put the blame back onto us but also, um, you know, overshadow the the violence of what's actually really happening and that's exactly what Hildebrand was doing in using the bodies of Aboriginal women to try and make a point that uh, Aboriginal communities don't care about violence. So yeah. it's only violence with what they perceive as violence. And so yeah. they have to come up with these elaborate ways of explaining themselves out of out of their own violence, which is what's been happening for 250 years and all over the world. Like, that's been a key part of colonial projects and settler colonial societies across across the world. That's such a good point. And, you know, when this whole, like, but we didn't mean it, it, it yeah. falls into this accident trajectory and then when something is perceived as an accident it it kind of alleviates it from falling uh, from being perceived as something that's deeply systemic yep and it divorces it from history which is what hildebrand was doing and what white witnesses do you know like they try and cover up history that's what happens every year on australia day as well so Yeah. yeah they just um i think it's also just about history you know they just refusal to to believe history or believe history only if it's written by their own witnesses. Mm. But it's interesting because you go back into the colonial documents at the time, um, you know, there were people who were writing about just the horrendous atrocities that were happening on the frontier. Um, and that was, you know, you know, so it's been happening. It's actually been shown by their own witnesses. Mm. They refuse to believe it and they have these huge... I mean, when we have the history wars and the wind shuttles and Howard and, uh, you know, Quadrant and everything, they just go to really elaborate measures to try and cover up what really happened, even if their own people were telling them, well, actually, this is what happened. Mm, absolutely. Um, I'm incredibly excited about this collection. And, you know, I've spoken to so many people who, who share those sentiments. Are, are you able to give us a little bit of an insight into what the process is like for you in collating your work? Um, yeah, I mean, it's just about going back uh, through my past work and I the Me and Jim piece is what really started to tie it all together. Mm. Um, so just this idea of the black witness and how the black witness has been totally silenced, um, oppressed over the past um, 200 years. So it's sort of about looking at, I mean, looking at my body of work and just seeing that there's actually been these themes that have come out that I haven't realised and that I've been working towards. 
So just looking at um, those sort of issues and, and just bringing it back to that central theme has been really interesting, but it's also been interesting because it's been quite organic. So I think, um, I don't know, it's, it's weird to think, you know, like you write about a certain topic for years and then you realise you've actually been writing to a specific point that you've been trying to make and it's sort of coming together in your mind. Yeah. Um, so it's been good to read back and, and just try and figure that out and figure out, you know, where the ancestors are leading, were leading me. Yeah, wow. So it's been a good process. I've still got a lot of work to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's all so, very yeah. exciting. Um, <laughs> what was that saying? It's all incredibly exciting. I, I mean, yeah. it's and UQP is such a wonderful publisher to work with. Uh, they've released such a, an incredible collection of books. Oh, definitely. And they've got a strong tradition of publishing um, Aboriginal writers as well. Yeah. So that's what I'm really looking forward to. You know, I think you've got to go to people you can trust. Um, yeah, so I, I think they're really believe in this, the publisher, Aviva Tuffield, um, has sort of been working with me quite closely, and yeah, so I feel really supported by, like, a small publisher like UQP. Yeah, that's wonderful, and it really, it, it uh, that point you just made really ties into the statement that you published about, you know, not just assimilating into these mainstream media spaces, um, yeah. but working with people that are able to foster your voice and know that it's sort of preserved in a way that, that um, feels important. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Amy. Um, and for those listening, for more information about Amy McGuire's work, uh, you can find her at amymcguire.com. So that's A-M-Y-M-C-G-U-I-R-E.com. Friday the 11th of September is National Walk Safely to School Day. During COVID-19, we need to support children who are learning from home. No matter where they are, children need to be physically fit to be mentally fit. It's a great reminder to all children and adults that walking regularly is the best exercise. So put your feet first and walk plenty in 2020. And remember, active kids are smarter kids. Find us on walk.com.au, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Walk Safely to School Day is a 3CR supporter. Next, we've got track three of the Underfoot series. The Underfoot series is a virtual audio tour um, and it was produced and recorded by Liz Crash and Jinghua Xian. And it's aimed at uncovering the secret histories of Footscray. These two old friends, both longtime Footscray residents, bring an intimate lens to local history as they travel through the archives looking for people like themselves. Queers, migrants, radicals, and artists. We're going to be hearing track three, titled Labour in Vain. This one looks at settler nativism, anti Chinese campaigns, arts and gentrification, and the grotesque fantasy of a white Australia. So, this is where it all started 42 Albert Street. It used to be the Dancing Dog Cafe. I'd come here for coffees pretty often. Anyway, this is the place that got me wondering about all the hidden histories here in Footscray. We both noticed the sign at the top of the building which says Australian Natives Association Friendly Society. And we both assumed at first it was an Aboriginal organisation. But it turned out to be a society for white men who were born in Australia. Alfred Deakin was a member, Edmund Barton, a lot of the Federation era politicians. 
They campaigned for federation and immigration restrictions and protectionism. It was founded in 1871. Back then, most of the government was made up of people who were born in Britain. So white people who were born in Australia were just starting to develop their own identity around that, in contrast to the British-born, and they called themselves natives. And they would hold corroborees celebrating January 26th, and one of their emblems had boomerangs on it. So this kind of settler nativist cultural appropriation thing where white people want pieces of Aboriginal culture but without Aboriginal people, where they sort of position themselves as the inheritors of indigeneity, that was happening a lot earlier than I would have expected. And then, on the other hand, the point at which white Australians became Australians and started to talk about themselves as Australians, that was a lot later than I would have expected. I mean, this was well after the peak of Chinese gold rush immigration to Victoria. The colony passed the Chinese Immigration Act limiting Chinese arrivals in 1855, and it wasn't until the 1890s that the majority of non-Indigenous people in Australia were Australian-born whites. So I found that really interesting when I was writing about the ANA back in 2015, because it demolishes the chronology of, like, we grew here, you flew here, you know? It blows apart the idea that immigration restrictions were about maintaining white Australia. It's really about creating it. Colonisation and xenophobia are simultaneous and ongoing, and it's white Australia that's the fragile, spectral thing on the horizon. It's the apocalyptic future, not a historical moment that can be restored. So... I did assume it must have been some kind of Aboriginal association, but I also thought, well, hang on, it's really old. Did Aboriginal people really have the kind of resources to get a permanent office in a nice building with a mural and everything in Footscray in the 19th, early 20th century? So when I learned it was actually an organisation for white Australian-born people, I was like, ah, the world makes sense again. It's not fair, it's depressing, but this fits into a narrative that I recognise. But it turns out I was actually still wrong, because during the peak of the ANA's power and influence, Footscray was a major, major centre of Aboriginal life and culture and political organising. And William Cooper, a local Aboriginal organiser, heard an ANA speaker in 1937, and apparently he was furious they'd appropriated the term native for themselves, being colonisers. I knew a bit about William Cooper, but I didn't learn he'd had that critique of the ANA until a couple of months ago, actually. And it surprised me. And it surprised me because people tend to assume that appropriation is a trivial modern issue that we only care about now that the real problems have been fixed. But it's always been both, hasn't it? The racism of a century ago was a lot more subtle and sophisticated than people seem to remember. For instance, the Immigration Restriction Act, the cornerstone of the white Australia policy, didn't make any explicit reference to race. It never actually uses the word white. It's a lot like the dog whistle politics now. This thing where white people claim that being called white is a slur, that calling someone a racist is as bad as being racist, or that only the most extreme and literal hate speech can be considered racism. None of that is new. Controlling the discourse of race has always been crucial to enabling racial violence. Yeah, it goes back to what you were saying in the first tour. You can't count on the future to be better than the past, unless you make it that way. 
And I know that, but it still surprises me. I guess that's kind of what this project is about, taking things that feel like they've always been the way they are now or worse and saying, well, is that actually true? Or is that something that has been different before and could be different again? For sure, yeah. People usually talk about the white Australia policy as an anti-immigration policy designed to keep people out, but it was equally about destroying the Chinese community that was already here. And one place there was a Chinese community was right here, so directly opposite the A&A building where the train is now on the other side of Raleigh Street was a Chinese market garden and urban vegetable farm for many decades. There were actually plenty of Chinese market gardens in the western suburbs and plenty of Chinese people full stop. One of the ways the ANA tried to make a hostile environment for Chinese workers was by encouraging consumer boycotts of Chinese goods. Yeah, they also lobbied for furniture stamping. That's why you see the Chinese labour and European labour-only stamps on old furniture. It's like the 1930s version of buying Australian-made linen sack dresses. You'd get your white labour chairs, your white labour sugar. But of course, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, and there's no ethical consumption under colonisation. And in any case, they had a bit of a problem getting these boycotts going because it was women who did most of the shopping, and the white women of Footscray weren't initially on board. Which is not to say that they weren't racist, but they weren't racist enough to overlook a bargain. The anti-Chinese campaigners spent a long time trying to change this, initially not very successfully. The local papers in the 1880s and 1890s are always whinging that women above all are the most inveterate of free traders. The same papers pointed to the fact that women didn't participate much in the anti-Chinese consumer boycott as evidence that they shouldn't have the vote. They were clearly incapable of thinking about things politically or collectively. This is something that you've done quite a lot of research on, Jinghua. Yeah, when I was initially researching this stuff for an essay a few years ago, the first thing that really struck me was that these were labour activists, but it wasn't a contradiction for them to attack Chinese workers in the name of equality because for them, Chinese people were inherently unequal. Like the Prime Minister Edmund Barton said, the doctrine of the equality of man was never intended to apply to the equality of the Englishman and the Chinaman. Ah, all part of building a democratic nation. That was the dream. Only a white nation could be a democratic nation. But while we're talking about the ANA and settler nativism, I can't help but think about how migrants fit into that particularly how, as non-Indigenous people of colour, we can end up validating this sort of diversity narrative that disappears Indigenous sovereignty. I remember one time Midsummer Festival approached me and asked if I wanted to be in an Australia Day thing because they wanted it to be more inclusive. And I was just like, oh no, no, that's not right. If we go up towards Irving now, you'll see the big colourful bundle mural. It's not by an Aboriginal artist, actually. It's by Hisko, who's a Mongolian-Australian artist. He's done a lot of work around Footscray, including the Franco Cozzo mural and the mural at the, at the back of ASRC, which has a portrait of Malcolm Fraser, and then words like hope and freedom in different languages. And then if we turn into Nicholson Street, you'll see flags for a lot of African countries. A few years ago, I was talking to Ihab, a Sudanese 
Australian artist about how both of us felt a bit like, hmm, is this something that contributes to erasing Aboriginal presence here or absorbs Aboriginal people into this flat multiculturalism? Like Asians and Africans are so visible in Footscray, while a lot of the visual markers of Aboriginal community are sort of memorialising. And you often hear people talk about Footscray as an African or Asian suburb, forgetting whose land it is. So that's a kind of migrant nativism, I think. It's another layer of erasure. Anyway, now we're on my street, Nicholson Street. Liz, you have a funny story about the butcher here. Alright, so this butcher, Footscray Hello Meats, is where I always go to buy meat for my cat. She's very fussy. She has a delicate stomach. It's changed ownership a few times, but it's been around since at least the late 80s when my parents moved here, uh, just before I was born. And my parents used to go here a lot, sometimes with me and my siblings. My dad is retired now, but he's a plumber by trade. He's worked on a lot of homes and businesses in the area. One business that he did the plumbing for in the late 80s was right next door to here, the Club X. Club X is a sex store that also has porn screenings and sometimes live peep shows. So my dad was going to Club X every day via the back entrance, thinking, obviously, that he was getting away with something, but the butcher saw. He saw this man spending all day skulking in a sex store, leaving his partner at home to sit in a dark room and do God knows what for hours. And my poor dad had no idea like how much the butcher was seething about this injustice uh, until one day... Uh, Dad happened to go into Fitzcroy Halal Meats alone, and the guy behind the counter gave him such a serve. So, obviously, like, that wasn't what was happening. He had the wrong end of the stick, but my parents were kind of touched that he was looking out for our family. My mum possibly slightly more touched than my dad. That's very cute. I used to buy late-night emergency lube from this Club X. I remember asking if they had it in a pump bottle instead of a tube so I could get at it one-handed, and the guy behind the counter was like, well, a lot of good things in life take two hands. You need two hands to take off a bra. And I was like, no, you don't. You need more practice. It was a good time. (laughs) So why did your parents move to Footscray in the 80s, Liz? So they were living in Richmond before and they were renting and they couldn't afford to buy a house. And then they saw that you could get a house in Footscray for like $20,000 or something, which was super cheap even then. But the reason it was so cheap is really depressing, actually. It's that the Department of Housing was flogging off all of its public housing stock at bargain basement prices. They were deliberately trying to make Footscray a more expensive place to live and have people in private housing who had an interest, a vested interest in the dollar value of their property rising. Wow, I guess that's kind of the basis of all gentrification. And that's well before what most people would think of as the gentrification of Footscray. Yeah, people often mix up the cause and effect and timeline and order of events with gentrification. And people I know who are always saying there's no ethical consumption under capitalism still often have this attitude of, uh, don't move to Footscray unless you're authentically working class or migrant because that's causing gentrification. That's a consumption-based analysis. It's ethical consumption, it's nasal gazing, and I think it's pretty pointless. The gentrification of Footscray is about decades of government policy that treat housing as primarily a way to increase wealth for developers and rich people. 
it's annoying when hipsters from Q decide that Footscray is cool now and feel safer for some reason. But that's not the cause of gentrification. It's just a symptom. Yeah, I moved to Footscray in 2012 and to this flat on Nicholson Street in 2013. And there were definitely a lot of those conversations and hand-wringing about new restaurants and cafes opening. But I also did wonder about contributing to gentrification as an artist. I did a few poetry readings at the Dancing Dog for Westward and Emerging Writers Festival. And in 2015, I did one out of my bedroom window for Big West Festival, which was super cool. I loved doing that. But I was also like, hmm, is this attracting the same crowd as those food tours that seem to treat my block as a human zoo? The arts do contribute to gentrification. But again, it's at the policy level. Governments often give arts funding to artists in areas with low property values to attract visitors and investment from outside the community. And then they will cut that funding once the artists have fulfilled their function and driven up the rents. Um, That's already happened to a lot of artist collectives that used to be around in Footscray in the 90s. Is there anything that artists can do to resist that? As individuals, I would say not really. You can try and be aware of the ways that you're being used, but it's pretty relentless. You can only resist gentrification collectively. So I think an important first step for artists in gentrifying communities like Footscray is building relationships with already existing collective organisations in the local area. Tenant groups, migrant organisations, Indigenous organisations. Just be part of the local community, the whole community, not just artists. Okay, so now if we keep going back up Nicholson Street, we kind of come full circle. Yeah, so at the corner of Nicholson and Paisley, next to the Welcome Bowl sculpture, there's a fairly shabby clock tower. I didn't make the connection until recently that this clock was donated by the Footscray branch of the ANA in 1986 to celebrate their centenary. And more than that, the ANA is still around. They merged with another friendly society to become Australian Mutual. The thing with the clock is that it's always at the wrong time, but it's not at the wrong time in any predictable way. Some days it's 15 minutes ahead, other days it's 45 minutes behind. I can never figure out what the pattern is. In the same way, history is rarely linear. Change is full of stops and starts, a few steps forward, a few steps back. It's also in front of my favourite shop in Footscray, which is a combination tobacconist, dry cleaner, key cutter, orchid florist. It's a somewhat incongruous mixed business, and that feels like a metaphor as well. Something about how many things can be true at once. The past isn't a single coherent narrative. It's full of fundamental ideological conflict, and often in surprising ways like how union organisers, who I would typically think of as on our side, were some of the most virulent anti-Chinese campaigners. But it's also inspiring to see that there has always been resistance. Nothing is a given, and there's nothing natural or inevitable about white Australia. It's a fantasy that's never been realised. Hey all you mob, it's Dr Mark Winnetong here. Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live, work and connect. 
these changes can be hard for some of us and can make us feel no good in our head or spirit, like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. If you're feeling like this, remember, it's okay to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust, like your family or an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au on the internet. A 3CR supporter.